This morning we're going to be in 1 Peter chapter number 3. 1 Peter chapter number 3. And if you didn't get an outline, there are some at the Welcome Center. If you'd like to have an outline to take notes with. I will preface this by saying it is a privilege to always share the Word of God. I remember even as a little kid, always wanting to preach. And uh, I've mentioned to you before that sometimes the reasons have not been always so noble. As a kid, I just wanted to stand up in front of So I, I have to admit to you, my reasons have changed since being a little kid. But I didn't realize what a privilege, what a joy, and at times what a challenge it would be to preach the Word of God. Because sometimes you preach the Word of God in such a way that you know it will be an encouragement and a blessing, and other times you preach the Word of God and you know that it will be iron sharpening iron and challenging. And so I ask you, as a congregation this morning, to bear with me in my weakness, to know that many of you have many more years of experience and life under your belt than I have can teach me many things from the Word of God and from life that you have learned. And yet I have the privilege of sharing with you a word from the Lord, and that you would give me patience and grace, and that you would hear it not as it is the word of Rodney King, but as as it truly is the Word of God. With that being said, I'm going to read 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 8 through 12. where Peter writes these words. Finally, be ye all of one mind, having compassion one of another, love as brethren, be pitiful, be courteous, not rendering evil for evil or railing for railing, but contrary wise blessing, knowing that ye are thereunto called that ye should inherit a blessing. For he that will love life And see good days. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips that they speak no guile. Let him eschew evil and do good. Let him seek peace and ensue it. For the eyes of the Lord are over the righteous, and his ears are open unto their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against them that do evil. This is the word of the Lord, and it bears all of the weight and authority that he possesses. May we receive it as such. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, it is a joy, it truly is a joy, to gather with people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Though we all come from different walks of life, Though we all have different backgrounds, different circumstances, different joys and different sorrows, nevertheless, we are one in Christ. We are united in him. So I pray that you would help us as your church, your bride, to hear from you, to want to long to know you better, to love you deeply, to know your peace the hope that you give, 
the joy that you give to us in our salvation. And most importantly, Lord, we want to exalt and magnify your name above all else, for that is our purpose. The chief end of mankind as you created us is to enjoy you and to glorify your name forever. So while we wait for the day when Christ returns, while we wait for the day when you will redeem the sin-cursed world and create a new environment in which there will be no more sadness, no more sorrow, no more sin, would you help us to be faithful and to hear and heed your word? For we ask it in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen. There are many people in the history of the church who have sought to discredit everything that we as Christians stand for. There are people who have attacked us, who have maligned us, who want to tell us that we are stupid for following a dead guy who died 2,000 years ago and we have no proof whatsoever that he rose from the dead. There are people who want us to think that we're the crazy ones. We're the ones following a crazy religion. All you people are so religious. And yet, there's something they can't explain. They can't explain how for the last 2,000 years, there have been people from every tribe and every nation and every language and tongue who have gathered together Sunday after Sunday, and especially during the early church, even throughout the week, to meet together, to pray, to hear the word of the Lord, to rejoice and joy together in the salvation that we have because of what Jesus has done. And those people from every tribe and tongue and nation have done this for 2,000 years and have done so joyfully, filled with hope, filled with love for one another, and in many ways have had one mind. How is it that you can have such a diversity and yet such a unity? I think that's something the world's trying to reproduce now, and frankly, it's something they're trying to steal from Christianity you see all of the commercials, you see all of the movies, everything in our American society, especially because we want to, to have a diversity, and there's something right about that. The problem is you can't have it without Jesus Christ. It's not possible. So while the world is doing its best to create its own people made up of diverse backgrounds and diverse cultures and diverse ethnicities, they'll never be able to reproduce what God has done in Christ in creating a new people, a people that he has redeemed to himself from the slave market of sin and has called to transform the world through the message he has commanded them to proclaim, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because it's that message that has changed them and has unified them. The Christian community, of course, is not made up of perfect people. No one in this room would say that. None of us would say that we are perfect, and we are well aware of other people's foibles. We're well aware of our own foibles and difficulties and challenges that we face as we try to walk 
this race, as you, if you will, walk this race as a Christian. I know my frailties, I know my weaknesses, and you know yours too. We're not made up of perfect people, but it is made up of people redeemed by the blood of Christ, and we're called to reflect the same teachings, the same virtues that Jesus gave and modeled for us who are his bride. Of all people who would talk about that, it would be Peter. Who could you say loved Jesus more as you read the Gospels than Peter? Of course, John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, and we understand that. But who's the one who's always talking when Jesus asks a question? Who's the one who's always quick to give an answer when Jesus asks a question? It's Peter. Because he loved Jesus. And at times, he was so impetuous in his responses to Jesus that Jesus had to rein him in. And at times, Jesus had to confront him. Jesus says, I must go into Jerusalem, and there I must suffer at the hands of the chief priests and the scribes and Pharisees, and I will be beaten and tortured, and I will die, and three days later I will rise again. And Peter says, no way! That is not happening to my, to my teacher to my leader. And Jesus has to tell him, get thee behind me, Satan. This is the reason I came. Who was the one who told Jesus, though all forsake you, yet I will remain with you? It was Peter. And yet, who is the one who denied Jesus Three times. It was Peter. Who saw the look of pain and hurt and betrayal in the eyes of Jesus as he was on the night of his crucifixion? It was Peter. Who saw the risen Lord and jumped out of the boat and swam as fast as he possibly could to get back to the one who had risen from the dead. It was Peter. Who sat down and ate breakfast with the one who had nail scars in his hands, who had a piercing in his side from a spear, a Roman spear? It was Peter. And who heard the question, Three times, do you love me? It was Peter. Peter heard it repeatedly. Who saw the look of compassion in the eyes and the face of Jesus? It was Peter. Peter understood what it was like to be admonished by Christ. He knew what it was like to be loved by Christ. He knew what it was like to see the compassion of Christ. He knew what it was like to see the humility of Christ. Who sat in the upper room and told Jesus, you will not wash my feet? It was Peter. And Jesus says to him, if you want to be a part of me, then you must have your feet washed. And Peter says, well, okay, not just my feet then, but my hands and my head, everything about me. I want to know you and love you and be associated with you and identified with you. Of course, it was Peter. And he writes for us 
this paragraph that I think is very instructive. And it's instructive for any church of any age at any time till Jesus Christ returns. This particular paragraph is actually the conclusion of what's often referred to as the household codes. Paul does that. He writes in his epistles, now you fathers need to remember this, and you husbands need to remember this, and you wives need to remember this, and you servants need to remember this, and you employers need to remember this. He has what he says are these, these household codes. These are what Christians do. This is how they act. This is how they live. And this is a conclusion to it. Because in verse 8, he says, finally, I have gotten to the point where I'm trying to summarize all of the things I'm trying to tell you. And all of, all of 1 Peter is basically Peter speaking to these elect exiles. If you go back to chapter 1, you'll see Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to, and this is the New King James I'm reading from, to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And in verse 2, he calls them the elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood in Jesus Christ. He's speaking to Christians who are all over the place, who have been dispersed because of persecution and difficulties. And he goes on in my favorite verses, probably in all the New Testament, in verses 3 through 9, but that's not this sermon. He goes through and explains to them all that they have in Christ. And I guess I will reference one thing. In verse 4, he says that you have been given this living hope, verse 4, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. This is our future hope. An inheritance that will not fade away. The money that we have may go. The cars that we have may break down. The houses that we have continually need to be maintained. But the inheritance that we have in heaven needs no maintenance. It will never be rotting. It will never be moth-eaten. It is forever reserved in heaven for you who know Jesus Christ. That is your inheritance. And in the very next verses here, as we're about to look at 1 Peter 3, 8 and following, you will see he references inheriting a blessing. And that's what we want. I will begin, actually, by looking at verses 10 through 12. Pastor Dixon read Psalm 34. Those are actually a quote from that psalm. Psalm chapter 34, verses 12 through 16. And he says in those verses that he who would love life and see good days is supposed to do something. And he gives a list of several things. Let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. These are things that somebody who loves life and wants to see good days should do. Is, is the psalmist there, David, saying that if you do these things, you are guaranteed a perfect life? Absolutely not. You can be somebody who refrains your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. You can turn away from evil and do good. You can seek peace and pursue it. And you can still have some of the most intense suffering, the most intense pain, the most intense sorrow that you could ever know and experience. And that's true because David experienced that. 
And Peter is speaking to people who are currently experiencing that. So clearly, Peter's not quoting this verse and telling these people who are suffering, just so you know, if you do a whole bunch of wonderful deeds, like, like speaking the truth, like seeking peace, like doing good and avoiding evil, then you will no longer suffer. That's not what he's saying. But he is saying this, that there is the blessing of God upon those who seek to live in accordance with his law. Of course, the Old Testament law is something most of us love to read through, right? We all love reading through the book of Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy. The scribes were well aware of what were in those those books. And they were prescribing and even adding to it for the Jewish people so that they were bearing the weight of the, the deeds of the law. And Peter, as a Jewish man, though maybe not educated, was well aware of what he, what he was told by the scribes and the teachers of, of the Jewish tradition. So he knows that what is being promised here is the promise of God's smile and blessing upon those who seek to obey. And then he gives the motivation for this in verse 12. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayers. We don't want to sit in our prayer closets at home wondering if God is hearing us. I don't think anyone in this room wants to sit at home with the burdens and the pain and the sorrow that you are bearing right now, praying and talking to God and wondering, is this even doing anything? None of us want that. We want the Lord to hear our prayers. And here's what Peter says. Let me quote to you from Psalm 34, where David says, the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. It's not as if he hasn't heard you. It's not as if he's ignoring you and casting you aside. He hears you. He hears your prayer and his ears are open to their prayers. But know this, that the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is generally God's disposition a disposition of love and joy in those who are seeking by faith to obey him and a disposition of wrath towards those who violate his holy character and holy law. The principle that Peter is essentially extrapolating from these verses from Psalm 34 is that the Lord will in this life reward and bless those who live according to his righteous ethical standard. Peter's not saying, do these things so that you'll be saved. We know that there was an entire reformation that happened in the 16th century that was sparked by a man named Martin Luther and others who followed him like John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, men who recognized that there's nothing good in us. We cannot earn God's salvation. And they recognized when they read Peter saying these words and quoting from Psalm 34 that he was not saying that you will earn God's favor by doing those things. What he is saying is that people who have been redeemed, these elect exiles, as we read in chapter 1, verse 2, they will live differently. They will. Not perfectly, but they will. And you can tell what the tree is by its fruit. So, he gives characteristics then for us to remind us what true redeemed people do. 
and how they live. They don't do it perfectly. None of us do it perfectly. And you know that. You feel it. But they do it. They seek it. They pursue it. And these virtues should be true of every church because Peter is calling to the church to do these things. So we really need to recognize as the people of God that we are to have a unified love. And I say are to. Let me just let me make it more strong. We must have a unified love for one another which manifests itself by selfless, compassionate conduct. We have to. It's not negotiable. God has made it clear and plain in his word that this is not to be negotiated. But I want to tell you, it's something that will automatically happen for people who love him and have been redeemed by him. So what are these commands? Well, he gives us five characteristics of Christian virtue that should be true of a church, that should be true of Christians. And then he's actually, and that is our, our interactions with one another. And then in verse, uh, verse number nine, he's going to talk about how our interaction and conduct should be towards those who are unbelievers. So verse eight is talking about how we as Christians in a church, as called believers in an assembly together of redeemed people, how we should live and conduct ourselves amongst each other. And then in verse nine, he talks about how we respond and react to the people outside the church who are not Christians and who do not love our message or our Lord. So let's look at these five characteristics in verse 8. He begins by saying, Finally, all of you be of one mind. If nothing could be harder in Scripture, I think it would be this. This would be the hardest. Because I say it, we're all from different backgrounds. I'm from northern Minnesota. So when I talk to teenagers, they immediately have a view of me. They view me as the backwoods hick. They really do, actually. I have a different background. You have different backgrounds. In some ways, we don't entirely understand each other because we aren't in each other's shoes. I didn't go to a public school. I didn't go to a Christian school. I was homeschooled. So many of the things that Christian teenagers face is that a public school, many of the things that Christian teenagers face as they go into a Christian school, those are experiences I just don't completely understand because I haven't experienced it. And you can look at all of your friends and all of your extended family members who are in different parts of the world or the country, and you can see how they were raised differently. You can see how your cousins were raised differently than this other set of cousins who were all raised differently than you were. That's just one simple example of how we all come from different backgrounds, different walks of life. And so when Peter says, all of you, not some of you, all of you, be of one mind. I think he is saying something that cannot happen naturally. It can't. The world, like I said earlier, is trying to do that right now naturally. But Peter is talking to people who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. These are the people who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God, who are blessed with every spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, who love someone they have not seen. There's something different about these people. 
how is it that all of us with different backgrounds, how is it that all of us with different life circumstances, all of us with different perspectives and different ways of thinking can be unified? And the answer cannot be, well, we just got to somehow all agree on something. It has to be around something that we all have. As Christians, we all have the gospel. We all have the same desire to love God because we all have the Holy Spirit within us. The only way unity will happen is if we yield ourselves to God's word and to his spirit. There's no other way. There's no other way. The world's trying it any other way. But they will never have true unity of mind. That's not to say this is easy. I'm not saying just because we have the Holy Spirit that as Christians it will just be easy. We're all going to be unified all the time. We're going to agree on everything. There's not a single person in this room who agrees with everything with another person in this room. Not one. We all have our own perspectives. We all have our own personality types, our own historical backgrounds. We're all different, but we have this. We have God's Holy Spirit. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ. The only way we can be unified is if we gather around the banner of the cross. That's the only way. That's the way unity comes. So when Peter tells these elect, dispersed Christians... Be unified. He's not saying be uniform. All of you need to look exactly the same. All of you need to dress the exact same way. All of you need to speak the exact same way. All of you have to have the exact same perspective. He's not saying that. He's very careful not to say that. But he is saying that you will be unified around what you can be unified, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I would hope that there's not a single person in this room who would disagree with that. The second characteristic of Christian virtue he lists in verse 8 is not only that we be of one mind, but the New King James says, having compassion for one another. You may have another translation that says, be sympathetic or have sympathy. And it comes from the Greek word, actually, sympathes. Sounds like our English sympathy. When we as Christians understand that all of us are unified, but not necessarily uniform, then we have a new perspective of viewing one another. Over and over again, we are told to have compassion one for another. In the King James, it uses bowels and mercies, bowels of compassion. And that's the idea, is you're talking about intense passions that you feel. Do you get excited about the things other Christians that you know get excited about? Do you weep when other Christians you know are weeping? Do you have sympathy and compassion for those who are working through difficulties and sorrows? Because all of us in this room are, whether they be health challenges, personal crises, extended family difficulties, financial struggles, interpersonal struggles with employees or fellow coworkers. We all have those difficulties, the struggles that we have internally with our own flesh. And we grieve sometimes when we sin against the Lord and, and, and it hurts. We sorrow when we lose a loved one. We rejoice 
at the success of a brother or sister in an enterprise that they have endeavored on. Is that you? Are you sympathetic? Do you cry and come alongside those who are weeping? Do you rejoice and take great joy in those who find happiness and joy in something? As Christians, one of our virtues is to have compassion for one another, is to have similar passions. And that's why I think the scripture does say that we weep with those who do weep, and we sorrow with those who sorrow, and we grieve with those who grieve, but also we rejoice with those who rejoice. We take heart in those who are taking heart. We understand that everybody is going through joys and highs and sorrows and lows. And as Christians, we notice those things and we care about those things. The third thing he says is to love as brothers. To love as brothers. I think one of the the things that I have not come to truly realize is how intense feelings of love can be. There are so many people God has placed in my life whom I love with the deepest emotions I can express. There are people God has placed in your love, your life that you love with the deepest emotions you can express. And in many ways, there are people that you love that you would do anything for, even as the scriptures say, you would be willing to die for that person. Peter says, one of the virtues of us as Christians, as an assembly of believers, is that we have a unified mind, that we have sympathy and compassion for one another, and that we love together as a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we can love one another in that way. Jesus expressed one of the greatest illustrations of love in the cross. Where while we were still his enemies, while we were still dead in our trespasses and sins, he hung on a cross and endured the scorn and the shame. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. No greater love could be expressed than that on the cross for us. So the followers of Jesus should be the same. We have an intense brotherly love. Does that mean there will be differences? Of course there will be differences. We already established that we're not all going to think uniformly. We're not all going to have the exact same perspectives. We're not always going to have the exact same interests. We're not going to have the exact same backgrounds. But we we have the exact same Lord, which means we can have the exact same love from him to others. Jesus summarized the law in this way. Love God. Love others. Love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said, by this all men will know that you are my disciples. How will they know that we are followers of Jesus? If you have love for one another. And the one another is not talking about the brotherhood of humanity. It's talking about fellow Christians. How will the world know that we're Christians? 
when they see our love expressed to each other. Sometimes that love is expressed in very difficult ways. Sometimes we tell the truth, scriptural truth, together in love. Sometimes we confront in love. But sometimes we give gifts of love. Sometimes we, out of joy, express love to somebody randomly as they come to mind because the Lord brought them to mind. I have received several notes from students, from teenagers, from people in this congregation. None, none of those notes were elicited. I didn't ask for them, and I didn't do anything in particular to warrant them. But I have received notes of love from people in this congregation. And, and it was just because the Lord must have laid me upon their heart to write that note of encouragement. And I have to tell you, that is one of the most joyous, wonderful things to experience, to get a note that I wasn't expecting that expressed love. And if I can be completely transparent, when I said earlier that I have not truly understood love until recently, part of that is just this church, this local assembly. I have not understood love until I came here six and a half years ago because I have seen love modeled. I have experienced the love of you people and I will candidly tell you I have a deep affection for each of you. And although we may not all have the exact same level of relationship together with each other, nevertheless it's true. And I can't explain it other than it's the fact that we all have the same Lord. We have the same gospel. We have the same Holy Spirit within us. And so even though I may not know some as well as I know others, I can say this. I do love each and every one of you. And I can say I have, ex- I have felt the expressions of love from you as well. And that's what a church should do. Model the love of Christ to one another so that the world sees that and says, what is so different? How can they do that? The fourth virtue, he says, is related to the second when he says, be tenderhearted. Be tenderhearted. Let your heart be tender to the Lord. Let your heart be tender to the needs and experiences of the people around you, whether they be unsaved people who are walking through a deep valley and perhaps this is the moment of crisis for them that the Lord will use to draw their heart to believe the gospel. Or be tender-hearted to that brother or sister, a Christian that you know, whether they be in this church or in your family or in another church that you know of, who's walking through deep waters and pain, and you feel with a tenderness that same pain with them. I've talked with teenagers before and told them one of the things I think that Christians, one of the things we do is when somebody else is hurting, we hurt too. Bearing one another's burdens. When somebody else is in pain, you feel that pain too. When somebody else is in in joy and excited, you share that same joy and excitement with them. This is part of a virtuous life of a Christian, is that they're tenderhearted. And fifth, he says, be courteous, it says in the New King James. You might have a different translation that says, be of humble mind or be of humble spirit. And the ideas are still the same. If I take the word courteous... We're talking about showing courtesy to somebody. One of the things I'm doing is I'm expressing a respect for that person. I will say 
yes, ma'am, or yes, sir, to that person out of respect, out of courtesy. But at the same time, I think the idea is that of humility, that I am expressing to them, I view them better than me. They are worthy of my submission to or my humility to. And so as Christians, one of the ways that we express these virtuous principles is in a humble nature. Paul says, esteem other better than yourself. Is that what we do as Christians? Do we esteem other people better than ourselves? This is how we as Christians are supposed to conduct ourselves amongst each other in the assembly. But Peter actually goes on to say that we're supposed to conduct ourselves a certain way with people who don't agree with us when it comes to the gospel. These are unbelievers. And in verse 8, he says, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing. So it's really one exhortation. It's just two-pronged. The negative side of it is that you are not supposed to revile back. Do you think that the world loves the message of Jesus? Of course it doesn't. And that's no surprise because Jesus said, they hated me, they're going to hate you too. So is it any surprise to us that our culture is increasingly insensitive to Christians, increasingly antagonistic towards our message and our ethical conduct, that they mock us, that they revile us, that they say all manner of evil things about us as Christians? And frankly, in the ancient world, in the first couple centuries of Christian world of the Christian world, the, the people who hated Christianity were referring to Christians as atheists. Because the Christians said, look, we will say that Caesar has his laws and we'll, we'll go according to his laws, we'll pay our taxes, we'll do all that stuff. But the one thing we will not do is we will not worship his gods and we will not say he's a god. We will not say Caesar is Lord. And so all of the Romans were saying, you Christians, you atheists, you don't believe in the Roman pantheon of gods. You, don't, you refuse to bow the knee and claim that Caesar is God. And with that, they vehemently persecuted the Christians. They reviled the Christians. They smeared them in the public. They did everything they could to smear the message that the Christians were trying to proclaim, the message of the cross of Jesus Christ. They were reviled. And these people Peter is writing to knew it. That's why they're dispersed, because they're running for their lives. And people are saying all manner of evil things against them. And what would be our natural response? Some person who is mocking Christianity and mocking the gospel and mocking us as Christians, what is our natural desire? I'm going to hit him right back. You think you're good at sarcasm? Watch this. That's what we want to do. But Peter says we are different. The world will respond in the way they will respond because they do not have the gospel. They do not believe the gospel. And so when they revile us, let them do it. You follow the teachings of Jesus, the teachings to turn the other cheek. When somebody who is persecuting you and saying all manner of evil against you, you bless them. Peter heard this message and he's simply teaching these people he's writing to the message Jesus taught him. Bless those who persecutes you. For you were called to this. What is the this referring to? Is it referring to the persecution or is it referring to the blessing? 
Were you called to persecution or were you called to blessing? And in a certain sense, it's probably both. We are called to persecute. All those who live godly and in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. So it should be no surprise when the world attacks us and attacks our message. But I think we were called to the blessing as well. You were called to an inheritance that is undefiled, incorruptible, doesn't fade away, and it's reserved in heaven for you. This is what we are called to so that we might inherit that blessing. Isn't that what we're looking for? One day, 120 years from now, most, if not all of us in this room, will be dead. We will. And we will be, if we have trusted Christ, in the presence of the one who saved us. That's the blessing we're longing for. Streets of gold, great. Pearly gates, great. But the most important thing is Christ himself, the presence of God, the one we have, as Peter says earlier in chapter 1, whom having not seen, you love. That's who we want. That's what we want. So Christian and their view of unbelievers is not to return the reviling and the attacks against our message because they, the world wants to revile us and say, your message is ridiculous, you're following a dead guy, those, those beliefs are antiquated, and we're saying, how can we help you? What can I do to bless you? Because it's upside down. It's the opposite of what we expect. When Jesus is getting smacked across the face, did he haul off and hit him back? He let him do it. And in fact, as he hangs on the cross, he cries out, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. These are the ethical virtues and conduct of Christians. And this is his point. The world is watching us. They're watching Christians and how they interact with each other. Hence why Peter lists in verse 8 these five ways in which Christians should live. But they're also watching how we treat them. Do we revile back the people who mock the gospel? The people who want to advocate for things such as the LGBTQ agenda that they know we as Christians will not agree with. Do we revile them back? Or do we bless them? I will close with this. Each of these things that are listed are things Jesus did. Jesus prayed in John 17 that he wanted his disciples to have the same unity that he and his father shared to be unified in mind. Who had compassion upon the multitudes because they were as a sheep without shepherd? Who had compassion on the people because they were hungry and had been walking with him a long way? Who demonstrated the greatest act of love? Who was tender-hearted to the pains and needs of the people around him? And who exhibited the greatest act of humility, even modeling it in the upper room with his disciples? The Lord Jesus himself. Who blessed those who were cursing him and reviling him? It was Jesus. So if we do this, Not only are we modeling the one who did it perfectly, but we will receive the greatest blessing 
in the future, and that is him. So, Lord, this is our prayer, that we would be a people who live righteously. We know we won't do it perfectly. And we know that this life is going to be filled with people from the outside mocking the message of the gospel and reviling us as Christians, claiming that we're backwards and we're the ones who are wrong and need to be more progressive and up-to-date with the times. Help us to respond like Christ, blessing those who persecute us, blessing and cursing not. And for us as Christians, as we interact together, as we run the race together as the assembly of saints, Lord, would you help us to have a unity of mind and heart? Would you help us to be compassionate to the hurts and needs and joys and highs and lows of each other and to be sympathetic, that we would love each other so that the world might see that we are your disciples, that we would be tender-hearted towards one another and that we would have that same humble spirit that our Lord exhibited. I pray for any person in this room who has yet to believe in the gospel of Jesus. Lord, would you redeem their soul from the pit Bring them to the saving knowledge of Jesus and help them to know what is the greatest joy, the greatest hope, and the greatest peace a person can ever know. Amen.